Okay, as we just get ready now to look at some of the things the Bible says, particularly about dedicating our life to God, let's just bow our hearts, shall we, and just pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together. We thank you, Lord, that this is a day of celebration. And Lord, particularly for, for Matt and that, and Lord, for Noah as well. And for the family, we just thank you, Lord, that you have blessed them. Father, now as we turn to your word, we pray that you open our eyes, our ears, our understanding. Lord, I pray that you take away any hardness in our hearts and just help us to to hear what you have to say. Lord, we just thank you for the blessings you give us. We thank you, Lord, for your word that teaches us and instructs us. And we just pray now your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the theme for what I want to say this morning, as you see there, is a solid foundation for life. I mean, we've just gone through that part of our service where we've dedicated Noah to the Lord. But what is it that we are really doing in that? What are we saying we want to achieve for for Noah in in dedicating him? Well, obviously we're entrusting him to, to God, praying that God will watch over and keep and protect him as he grows. But there's a commitment on our part as well. And what are we doing? Is this indoctrination? Are we just trying to make children do what we think? Or is it more than that? Well, before we go any further and we answer some of those questions, because I know that the Richardson family are quite a a fan of Disney things. Anybody see the movie Wreck-It Ralph? Anybody see that movie? You not seen it? Okay. It's It's a really great movie. It shows what happens when video game characters get to the end of the day and the arcade is closed and all of a sudden they get about what they do. It's a little bit like Toy Story, you know, when nobody's watching the toys play. Well, this is a, a film that, or a movie that just looks at the arcade characters. And you know the arcade games you get? Well, at the end of the day, the arcade closes and all of a sudden they come to life and they start doing things, they meet together. The main character is this chap that you can see there, the large chap called Ralph. And he's kind of a bit of a gentle giant. His job is to wreck things, hence the name. And he's part of this game called um, Fix-It Felix Jr. And the idea of that game is that Ralph goes around wrecking this building and Felix has to come with his magic hammer and restore things. And of course you've got to restore things quicker than he can wreck things. And that's the idea of the game. But Ralph isn't happy. He's not happy that he's the bad guy. And all the time he's on his own and he just kind of would like to do something good. He wants to be a hero. He wants to be accepted, really. And so he ends up wandering out of his own game and looking around. And he ends up in another game called Sugar Rush. It's basically a go-kart kind of racing game, racing around a track. And it's all kind of uh, scenery of sweets and candy and all the kind of... You know, things that children shouldn't be really eating all the time, but that's the idea. They're racing around these kind of things. And everything seems really wonderful and perfect in the game until you start to realize that there's something not quite right in this game called Sugar Rush. And Ralph is kind of placed in this environment. And we find that there's a, a king that kind of rules over this Sugar Rush land and the race and everything else. And he's called, unimaginably, uh, a King Candy. But he's not who he says he is. He's actually a really sinister character called Turbo who sneaked in from another game because he was jealous that he used to be number one as this kind of racing champion in the game he was in. And then that game got shut down. And so he sneaked into this game 
and mess with the code. He infected the whole system. He basically erased everybody's memories. And so he becomes now this, this king over this land, and yet he's not really a, a nice guy at all. Everybody thinks he's this nice king, but the ruler of the Sugar Rush land, the champion of the, the racing game, is this girl named Vanellope. Now, Turbo usurped the crown, he raised everyone's memories, as I said, and he made Vanellope an outcast. Ralph is this misunderstood giant with his tender heart, as I said, and he wants to be good, but he knows that he's bad. As the game goes on, he makes friends with Vanellope, and Ralph becomes determined to set the record straight. Because he realizes that Vanellope should be the lead character, should be the, the hero of this, or heroine of this game. And yet, something's wrong. She's been rejected by all the other characters in the game. But she's actually the princess. And Turbo, this one who's set himself up as King Candy, is actually the villain who's deceived everyone. At the end of the game, when Turbo's true identity is finally revealed, all the other characters get their memories back and their eyes are opened and they realise that Vanellope, who they ridiculed, was actually the right for their after all. The other characters then shamefully plead for mercy from Vanellope and they realised how they treated her. Now, those themes come directly from the Bible. I'm not suggesting that Disney went to the Bible before making the film, but those themes are directly from the Bible. You see... God created everything perfect. There were no errors in the code, if you like. There was no sickness, there was no sadness, there was no death. But Satan, just like Turbo, became jealous. Because no longer was he number one. You see, we see in the book of Genesis that God created everything. Everything was perfect. And Satan's looking at everything as this wonderful angel with this incredible exalted position. And then suddenly... As God gets ready to hand over this earth he's created, Satan's thinking, well, this is all mine. And then God creates man. Satan was jealous beyond words. And set about deceiving man, corrupting the code, if you like. And then Satan becomes king of this world. And that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that for now, Satan is the god of this world. And of course, the, the true hero, Jesus is often made out to be the villain. People don't want to hear about Jesus. Jesus is the outcast. You know, I find it very interesting. People say that they don't believe in God. And yet, when I talk to people about Jesus, within a few seconds, people can get irate. If I were to talk about the Easter Bunny, if I was to talk about Father Christmas, I could talk about any fictional character. People don't get emotive. Talk about Jesus, and it stirs people. Why? Why are people so stirred by the name of Jesus Christ? Well, just as in that game. People knew something wasn't right. And at the end of the game of life, everything will be revealed and people will realise that the devil really has been the true villain, that he's deceived everybody. And, of course, Jesus will be shown to be who he really is, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of everything. And on Sunday mornings at the moment, we're actually studying through the book of Revelation. That book which a lot of people don't understand, it's not that complicated really, it's just a case of reading the thing, but the book is the revelation of Jesus, it's the unveiling of Jesus, it's a book that actually tells us, at the end of the film if you like, how it's all going to be, it kind of reveals the, the true nature of things, of course you're welcome to come and join us as we carry on our study through 
revelation. So as I said, just as it is with Wreck-It Ralph, so there's something wrong with the code, this game of life. How can we know, though, what is true? Who's being deceived? Who's deceiving? How can we know that we have or are building on a solid foundation? You know, this morning we're dedicating Noah to God. How do we know that we're doing the right thing? Well, this kind of brings us to a subject, really given the grand title of epistemology. It simply means the study of knowledge. That's what it is. Its scope, its limits. You know, really the, the question boils down is, how do you know what you know? You know? What is the basis that you have for what you believe? Now, we may talk about evidence as part of our basis. But you see, evidence boils down into two types. There's empirical evidence, things that we can actually verify and test for ourselves. But there's also faith-based evidence. Things that we take on the basis of faith. And, you know, we all employ both of those things in varying degrees. In the Bible, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul said this, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. Well, that's a good piece of advice anyway. But then he goes on and says, But to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. That word, first of all, soberly, proeo is the, the Greek word, and it means to exercise the mind. You know, a lot of people think that faith is just a, a blind leap in the dark. The Bible says it's not. The Bible says that we should exercise the mind. This should be something that we think about. Soberly is that short Greek word which we would pronounce ice. It means with intent. Thinking with intent, that's the idea that we are encouraged to follow. And notice all that God has given to everyone, every one of us, a measure of faith. And you all have faith. You employ faith every day in all sorts of different ways. You see, faith, as I said, is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is the result of deductive logic, whether you've thought about it or not. You see, who believes the sun is going to rise in the morning? It's faith. You've got no proof or guarantee that it will, but you believe it will. We all expect it to. That's faith. Who would sit on a one-legged chair? Probably very few of us. But you're quite happy sitting on the chairs you're sitting on. You've all got faith that they've been made well and that they're going to support you. That's faith. I don't know how many of you drive a car. You need faith to drive a car. Certainly when some people are driving. But you see, when you're driving a car, you're putting your faith in the power of a painted white line and that that line will exert power over the mind and will of an oncoming driver. You see, all that separates you from an accident is that white line. And the belief that the driver on the other side is not going to cross over that line is faith. We all employ faith in all sorts of ways in our lives. It's just empirical data that we collect to make these faith choices. So come back to that question, how do you know what you know? What is the basis that you have for what you believe? Now the majority of knowledge is faith-based because most of the things that you know, you've heard from somebody else and therefore you've trusted them, that's faith. You haven't personally verified most of the things that you believe and accept. So you've accepted somebody else's belief. 
probably starting with your parents and then school teachers, further education, the media and so on. Of course, the media is not always the best place to gain and glean information. It's been said before that if you listen to the media and read newspapers and watch TV, then you're misinformed. If you don't do it, then you're uninformed. So it's kind of a, a lose-lose. The Bible, as we've already seen, exhorts us to think soberly, particularly in regard to our faith choices, who we're going to trust or what we're going to trust. You know, I know this morning whether you believe the Bible is true. There's a lot of Christians that kind of believe the Bible, but it's not really a, a deeply rooted faith. It's kind of a, well, my mum and dad believed it, or, well, I, I think the pastor believes it, and you say, well, are you going to go along with it, thinking that, well, others think it's true, so I'll go with that. That's not good enough. The Bible says that we should think soberly. We should really exercise our mind. You know, if you don't believe the Bible, what is your foundation? What is the basis for everything that you think and believe? I mean, it could be your own opinion. I'll be honest, that's dangerous ground. Because we always change our opinions on things. It may be the opinion of others. I'd suggest that's even worse. Because you don't know their agenda or where they're coming from or where they've got their basis and information. I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible from cover to cover. I even believe the cover. The Bible is God's word. Over 300 times the Bible declares itself to be the word of God to us. You know, there's millions of pounds spent on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You see these probes being sent to to Mars, trying to find some evidence of life, some evidence of intelligence outside of our own world. Well, I would suggest that we have it right here in the pages of the Bible. Something that's come from without outside our time domain. The Bible says, and this is in Second Peter, and Peter speaking, he says, we've not followed cunningly devised fables. He said, we've made this up. This is some story. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look what he says. But we're eyewitnesses. And it's one of the best form of evidence that you can have in a, in a courtroom. If you have an eyewitness, that's an incredibly powerful testimony. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses. We're not making this up. We saw it. We were there. We lived with Jesus. We saw him after he'd risen from the dead. We walked with him. We ate with him. In Luke's Gospel, he starts it and says, For as much as I've taken hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Luke sets out to write this document, which seems to be a, a trial document to be presented to Rome on behalf of Paul. Paul was arrested, he, he made this plea to go and speak to Caesar. Now in doing that, you'd need to take some document with you and Luke seems to write his gospel as a defense. And so what he does is collates information from eyewitnesses and records it for us. Now, if any of these accounts that are recorded were false, it would be very easy at that time to instantly disprove them and say, that's not true, it didn't happen. But this is put together from people who were there who saw the events. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, first three verses, it's Luke's second letter. He says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. 
to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, that's after his death and resurrection, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You see, the basis for the early church, the basis for Christians, really has always been the evidence. Many infallible proofs, Luke says. That's why we believe it. That's why all of the disciples went to horrific deaths. All they had to do was say, well, you know, we just made the whole thing up. And it would have been over. But they went to death. They were flayed and then dragged behind chariots. They were crucified upside down. Boiled alive. All sorts of horrible deaths that we can't really begin to imagine. But they endured it and they went through it because they knew it was true. They couldn't deny it. They couldn't say, well, you know, we just hid Jesus' body in Peter's basement. Or They knew it was true. They'd seen Jesus. There was something that they couldn't deny. And here, Luke says that Jesus showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. This is the basis for what we believe. Later on we read this, Wherefore, of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, unto the same day that he was taken up from us, one must be ordained to be witness with us of his resurrection. They decided to choose a replacement for Judas. And they wanted somebody who was a witness. Not somebody who had heard it from someone else. But they wanted somebody who had actually seen Jesus alive. This is the basis of Christianity, the basis of what we believe. In 1 John chapter 1 it says, That which we have from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and handled, our hands have handled of the word of life. I mean, what an incredible statement that is. John is saying that we've seen these things. We've not been told it by somebody else. He said we've looked upon these things. We've actually handled, we've touched. This isn't some hallucination or story that had been invented by other people. This was real. They knew it to be so. It's what we would refer to as empirical evidence. This is the basis of Christianity. And see, I would contend that we can trust the Bible in every area. You see, the Bible can be trusted scientifically. I want to show you in a moment a few of those things. It can be trusted in regards to geography. Incredible things that are, are revealed and recorded in the Bible that we've later discovered are absolutely right, as the Bible says. Historically, everything that the Bible records, a lot of people dismiss the Bible. Yeah, I read, there's one guy, uh, a scholar by the name of E.P. Saunders, and I read a book of his, and he actually made this incredible statement. He said, in regard to history and things, he said, well, we generally discard the things that the Bible says. And we trust things that other sources tell us. I mean, that's that's biased. It's just immediately rejecting anything the Bible says. That's their basis of truth, apparently. The Bible can be trusted from an archaeological perspective, prophetically, from an astronomical perspective, the things that the Bible says about the heavens, and mathematically as well. Incredible things interwoven into the Bible. I mean, this isn't just the work of lots of different men from different backgrounds, and some women as well. This is the work of God that spans eternity. Let me just show you just a couple of things from a scientific perspective. The Bible says, in the beginning. Well, we know 
that there was a beginning. It was one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century, that there was a beginning. That's the opening statement of the Bible. In fact, the Bible says, the first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We've got time, space, and matter all revealed in that sentence. That's the reality. That's how we live. That's our existence all revealed in the very first verse of the Bible. A absolutely true scientific statement that there was a beginning. And nothing could create itself. You can't have nothing creating everything. So if you could have no thing, you have to have someone. And that's what the Bible declares. The Bible also declares that everything creates after its kind. That's a scientific statement. You can go around this world and you can look and you will find that everything reproduces after its own kind. Now, of course, that's totally in conflict with what Darwin says. Darwin says things will produce things other than themselves. Well, show me one example. I had an email debate with Michael Gove a year or two ago when they were proposing to start teaching evolution to primary school children. And I said, okay, look, I'm not talking about religion, I'm just talking about the science. Just give me one scientific argument that, that proves your point. The government came back, and in, my, in the email they came back, they said basically that they don't have any evidence, but they're going to teach it anyway. That's the, the net result of what they said. I asked them a whole bunch of scientific questions. Could they answer this, this, this? They couldn't answer a single one, nor could they give me a single reason scientifically why they could teach evolution. It's a theory. And that's all it is. It has no scientific foundation whatsoever. And the Bible says everything creates after its kind. Why would you believe something that man says that cannot be obscene, cannot be evidenced, and yet reject something so clearly as the Bible that states like that? The Bible stated that the earth is a sphere. You know, all sorts of different cultures had various ideas. The earth is flat, the earth is sitting on a giant tortoise, and all those bizarre things. The Bible says that the earth is a sphere. Way before we had the ability to go outside our atmosphere and look down on the world from space. The Bible makes a comment in Psalm chapter Psalm 8, verses 6 to 9, that there are pathways in the sea. That led a man, a Christian man, by the name of Matthew Fontaine Murray, to go and discover what we now refer to as the science of oceanography. That there are pathways in the sea. Well, the Bible said it way before we kind of understood it from a scientific perspective. Moses instructed the Jews to circumcise on the eighth day. You know, that's the best day to do that. Because the blood clotting agent that is produced in the body is at its peak on that day. So there's minimal blood loss. It's the best day to do it. How did Moses know that? Trial and error? In Leviticus 17.11, the Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. You know, even up to the time of George Washington, there was a, a practice that went on referred to as bloodletting. And they'd use leeches and all sorts of things to drain the blood off people that were poorly, thinking it would help them. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. We now know that to be true. The Bible speaks of a, a star in space, referred to as Arcturus. The Bible says it's on the move. Scientists said it wasn't until they realized it is on the move, but it's on the move toward us. Don't worry, it's a long, long, long way away. But you see, the Bible makes these scientific statements. They're just some. There's so many more that we could talk about. From a historical perspective, I just want to just read this to you. This is a, a comment by a chap called Professor Robert Wilson. He's dead now, he's in heaven. He wrote a book called Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament. Now this guy, we talk about experts. You know, you want to trust somebody, you want to put the faith in people. This guy could read and write 45 ancient Semitic languages. I speak two languages, English and gobbledygook. In fact, at my, my day job, my work, we've got a lot of different people from different cultural backgrounds. 
and I'm forever trying to pick them up on their English. It's the only thing I, I speak, of course. But this guy could speak 45 ancient languages. At the age of 25, he could read the New Testament in nine languages. I'd suggest there's some people here this morning that have never ever read the New Testament, let alone read it in nine languages. He'd memorize the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. He also had many of the Old Testament books memorized in Hebrew. And that takes some doing. I know the verse, first verse of the Bible in Hebrew, but not the whole, by any means. This is a statement he said, For 45 years continuously I've devoted myself to one great study of the Old Testament, all of its languages and all of its archaeology and all of its translations. The critics of the Bible who go to it in order to find fault claim to themselves all knowledge, all virtue, all love of the truth. One of their favorite phrases is, all scholars agree. Well, when a man says that, I wish to know who are the scholars and what they agree on. Where do they get their evidence? I defy any man to make an attack on the Old Testament on the ground of evidence that I cannot investigate. It is after I learned the necessary languages, I set about the investigation of every single consonant in the Hebrew Old Testament. There are about 1,250,000 of them. It took me many years to achieve my task. I had to observe variations in the text, in the manuscripts, notes of the Masoretes and all their various versions, parallel passages and contextual emendations of critics. And then I had to classify the results of every character, every constant, to reduce the Old Testament criticism to an absolutely objective science, something that is based on evidence and not opinion. The result of those 45 years of study which I have given to the text has been this. I can affirm that there is not a page of the Old Testament concerning which you need have any doubt. For example, to illustrate its accuracy, there are 29 kings, ancient kings, whose names are mentioned, not only in the Bible, but also on monuments we've uncovered of their own time. There are 195 consonants in those 29 proper names. Yet we find that in the documents of the Hebrew Old Testament, there are only two consonants out of the 195 that have ever been called into question. The names are in exactly the same way as they have been described on their monuments, which archaeologists have dated and discovered. Some of these go back 4,000 years. Compare that with the accuracy of the greatest scholar of his age, the librarian Alexander in Egypt, about 200 BC. He compiled a catalogue of the kings of Egypt, so 38 in all, of the entire number, only three or four were recognisable. He also made a list of the kings of Assyria, and in only one case can we tell who he's talking about. And that's not spelt correctly. Or take Ptolemy, who drew up a register of 18 kings of Babylon. Not one of them is properly spelt. You could not make out the man at all if you did not know some of the outside sources. If anyone talks about the Bible, ask him about the kings mentioned in it. There are 29 kings referred to, 10 different countries among these 29, all of which are included in the Bible and on the monuments. Every one of these is given their right name in the, right, uh, in the Bible, their right country, their right place, in the correct chronological order. Think what this means. You know, we're dealing with a book that is absolutely accurate historically, beyond any other work of history that we've got. Now, this morning we could go through all of these different things, and I want to encourage you to realize that that which we're doing this morning in dedicating Noah is not just some practice that we go through. It's not just a, a nice thing so we can get some pictures and say, wasn't that a nice day? This is a real basis. There's a reason for this. Because we want Noah's life as he grows to be based upon that which is true. Not just opinions that have no basis or 
ideas that are totally false in their premises and the things they assert. Very quickly, I just want to talk to you a little bit about the Exodus. You remember this story of the account in Egypt, the Israelites were in Egypt for this period of time, the Egyptians were cruel to them and so on. And we know that they were led out of Egypt, they went across the Red Sea, and a lot of people just think of that as some quaint Bible story. Well, of course, Egypt's a real place, we know that. We know this land of Goshen up here, this very fertile area was the land that Israel inhabited, this beautiful area here. This area here is Midian, and then we've got what's referred to today as the Sinai Peninsula. There was a trade route up here called the Way of the Philistines, and of course you're familiar with the Red Sea. Red Sea had two branches, but what we find is that Moses was made this prince and ruler. He ended up killing an Egyptian. He ended up fleeing from Pharaoh. I'm not going to read all the text. This will be in the notes. We'll put this on the website if you want to look in more detail. But see, Moses was called to deliver them, and he tried to do that himself the first time, and they rejected him. The second time they accepted him. You know that's a picture of Jesus Christ. The first time Jesus came, they rejected him. The second time Jesus comes, people will have no choice but to accept him. So Moses ends up fleeing to Midian. Makes this journey. Now, this is where he would have gone across the way of the Philistines and then drops down into this area of Midian outside of Egyptian territory. He finds this ladies at the well and he becomes married to this daughter of the priest of Midian. And he goes from there down to the desert area. And he comes to what's referred to as a place called the Mountain of God, a place called Horeb. It's a mountain that's in Saudi Arabia. God said to him that he wants to bring the Israelites out of Egypt back to this mountain to serve God upon this mountain. That was what Moses was commissioned to do. Now, the tradition has it that the Sinai Peninsula is where Moses went, this mountain. And yet we've already seen that he was told to go to Midian. He didn't go to this area here, he went to Midian. And yet we have a monastery here and everybody refers to this as being the location. Just man's opinions again, no foundation whatsoever. Loads of maps you find in the backs of even Bibles. There's lots of problems because there's no archaeological evidence at those sites in the Sinai Peninsula and lots of other things. In the New Testament, Paul tells us quite clearly that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. We know where it is. So that's the journey that Moses took. After some years, then he goes back to Egypt to deliver the people. Now, when the Egyptians leave, this would be the, the uh, sorry, the Israelites leave Egypt, this will be the natural route that are taken along the way of the Philistines. It's the easiest way out of Egypt. But they're told by God to turn into the desert. Now, sometimes God asks things of us that we don't always understand because we don't see the other side of the story. Well, God told them to go and encamp at this place, Hiroth, and he's told it's between Migdol and the sea. So they're heading towards the sea at this point. That place, by the way, is referred to as the mouth of the gorges. That's the name of that place, Hiroth. And they end up trapped. So I'm not going to go all through the texts again. If you want to look at the details, this will be on the website. We'll put it up later today. And they end up this place, this place called Etham. It's named because of uh, the rocks of a reddish color in this region, the whole of this area. And then they come to this outcrop here. You see, this is the route that are taken down to this big, large beach area. These are pictures of this area. This really exists. It's a real place. And this is the point where he says, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. It's like a dead end. They come to the sea. There is nowhere else for them to go. And you look at this place here. This is it from the sky. It's a large beach. You could easily get a couple of million people on that beach. Trapped. Of course, they don't know what's going to happen next. You see, 
there's a blueprint, of course, here, is that the, the Red Sea was the, the limit of Egypt's authority and passing through the sea was necessary because it separated the workers of iniquity, the Egyptians, and the children of God. But it was a step of faith. You know, that's the kind of thing that all of us have to face. One day Noah will come to that place of making that decision whether to step out in faith with God. And one day we pray that he would come to that place of wanting to be baptized. It's just a public declaration saying that he believes in Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not going to read through the text, but God calls Moses to strike the water. And as he does so, this wind blows across from the other side. We're told in Exodus 15 that the the sea becomes congealed. Well, one of the dictionary definitions of congealed is to become like ice. If you blow continually a strong wind upon the sea... There's the potential to freeze it. And I think that's what happened. I think that they end up with this big wall of water that gets frozen, and in the middle of this, interestingly enough, there's a land bridge. Just under the surface of the water. And you can see this, you can even go onto Google Earth and see this, it's there today. And interestingly enough, also, at this place, where we're told that later the water came back and drowned the Egyptians, on the seabed, there's chariot wheels. There's bones of horses and humans. There's the spokes and things of the chariots. How did they get there? I would strongly suggest that this is wonderful evidence of this event. There's also pillars that were set up either side. One of them has been removed now by the Saudi government. There's one on each side. And the inscription that was on there declared that Solomon had put them there to mark the point of the crossing of the Red Sea. They left there. They journeyed, interestingly enough, back around to the sea. They pick up all the weapons that the Egyptians had lost that have floated to the shore, which they then used later in battle. But they make this journey then to the, before they come to this mountain that Moses had been told to bring them back to, they come to a place called Rephidim. This is a really interesting place. You can look at this, this is pictures from Google Earth, you can look at this yourself. And we're just zooming in on this space here. And as you zoom in, you get to the point up here, it's difficult to see, it's a little bit dark, you just about see here, this, this black mark, that's a shadow. It's a shadow that's being cast by this really tall rock, about 60 feet tall. Interesting enough, rock, this rock is split in two. Now the Bible says that Moses struck a rock and it split in two and water came out. This is a place, by the way, there is no rainfall. Or at least hardly any rainfall year on year on year. And yet, you can see from this rock, there is huge evidence of erosion and water in this area. Clearly water at some point came out of this rock. It just happens to be in the same place that God told Moses to strike a rock and water came out. There's also an altar there. There's about 200 yards from this split rock and God had told Moses, we read in the book of Exodus, to build an altar. These are real things, you can see it. They then journeyed from this point, they come round to this mountain, this is a large area about a mile across, that's just a, an artist's impression of this area, but this large area where they easily could have encamped. That's a, a picture from Google Air. Interesting enough, the Saudi authorities have actually fenced off some of this area, but there's archaeological sites that they've clearly noted. Now they don't publicise this, of course, you don't normally hear about these things. But there's all sorts of work that has been done, evidence that people lived there clearly. There's also evidence that there was once a lot of water in this area. God again, this is not the split rock we just looked at, but later God also provided water in this area for them. There's another altar, you can't see it very clearly there, but we'll look at it a bit clearer there, you can just about see there's this altar. Again there, the outcropping. The Saudi authorities know exactly what this is. We've actually got a, di- a diagram here, this is from the Saudi Arabian Department of Archaeology. And it's just this pit, there's, a, there's, a, there's an ash pit up here, 
where animals would have been sacrificed and offered up, just as we read about in the Bible. But the Bible also says they built 12 pillars around this area, and there's evidence of those pillars that are there as well. We've also got this incredible pile of rocks that seem to be arranged like an altar, and on the side of these rocks there's this Apis bulls, the same bulls they worshipped in Egypt. That sign which is surrounding this, oh, let me just read that to you, it says, Archaeological Area Warning, it is unlawful tra- to uh, trespass. Violators are subject to penalties stipulated in the antiquities regulations passed by royal decree. Saudi government won't let you get into that particular area. You can see it though, and you can see the pictures. Another interesting thing is we've got the mountain that Moses was told to bring the people back to. This Sinai, we're told, was on fire, that God descended upon it in fire. The top of the mountain is blackened. Now, a man called Bob Cornuke went out there, he got a piece of rock, he took it back to America, he took it to a laboratory, asked them to find out what it was, they tested it, and they said, where did you get it? He said, well, you tell me what it is, I'll tell you where I got it. They said, it's superheated granite. It's not volcanic rock. How, how can you explain the top of the mountain, superheated granite? You see, the evidence of these things, when you start to look at it, is overwhelming. What we believe is not just fables, as Peter said. Again, this is just looking from Google Earth. You can see the Red Sea in the distance there. There's the actual details of where those locations are if you want to find them. On the rocks up the mountain, by the way, we've also got these drawings. Anyway, you recognize that. Let me zoom in a little bit for you. Well, you may recognize that as the menorah. It's on a rock in Saudi Arabia. It's the Jewish lampstand that they have in their temple. Now, God gave Moses details of what he was to build and to build a a tent, a tabernacle, and all sorts of furniture to go in there. Why would that be there? Maybe Moses was actually scribbling notes as God was revealing these things to him. What's the conclusion? Okay, the Bible is trustworthy and true. Just as, again, with... The film Wreck-It Ralph, and by the way, Matt, you can have a copy of this. Okay, It's a gift for you. Just as with that film, people have been deceived into believing a lie. Satan has messed with the code, and people have been going along, kind of knowing that something's not right. Yet if, you're not, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm sure you know that this world is not right. There are problems. You've only got to look around. You've only got to look at the daily headlines and realize this isn't right. Something is wrong. Who is going to fix it? We don't have a... Felix, to come with the magic hammer and fix everything. That's not the way this world is uh, going to work. You see, the world has been told there is no God. I don't know if you saw that ridiculous advertising campaign that Richard Dawkins partly funded and sponsored. On London buses, it was going around some years ago now. There probably is no God. What a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, if you've got the... Confidence your conviction, just say there's no God. But don't say probably no God. And of course they can't say there's no God because you can't prove that. And of course, when you look at the world, the logical conclusion is there is a God. You look at everything we see, the complexity of the world in which we live in. You look at the wonder of a little baby like Noah. The Bible says that children are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, as you watch a little child grow, as you see their little fingernails, their little hands... As they start to grow, as they start to smile, and as they start to walk, they start to speak, their emotion, their ability to learn the word no, that's coming. We are incredibly, wonderfully and fearfully made. Of course, the world would tell us we're just the product of evolution. 
I don't believe for a moment that Noah is just the product of time and chance, happenstance. I don't believe that there's no purpose for his life. I believe that God has a wonderful purpose for his life. And I believe that God has a wonderful purpose for each of your lives. You can choose to ignore it. You can choose to reject the evidence. But from this morning onwards, none of you can go away and say, I reject the Bible because I just don't believe it's true. It's true, all right. And we haven't even scratched the surface of the things we could show you. There are some utterly breathtaking prophecies in the Bible. Prophecy is not a prediction, by the way. We, we kind of predict things. We predict the weather and you know, we predict it's going to rain and it does in this country. The Bible doesn't predict things. The Bible deals with prophecy. That's the future recorded before we've got there. The only way that can happen is because God is outside of time. I really encourage you this morning, if you're not a Christian, to think about these things. The Bible encourages you to think soberly. Please don't ever decide to come to church because, well, it seemed quite nice and, well, my friend goes or, you know. Think soberly. It's got to be an intellectual thing. But at the same time, the real problem is the heart. You know, because I can convince you, I can show you all the evidence and you can still reject it because the real part of the problem is the problem of the heart. You see, just as the Israelites in Egypt, mankind is being held by the power of a usurper. Just like it was in Wreck-It Ralph as well. But there is a deliverer and his name is Jesus. And I pray this morning that if you're a Christian, you fall in love with this book. Because this book is more than just a roadmap for life. This book is everything that you need for every single day of your life. This book tells us about Jesus, the one who came and gave his life. And we have a problem with sin. We can't, just as with Wreck-It Ralph, he, he didn't want to be the bad guy. But he couldn't change. We, that's us. But Jesus came and took all of our sin and died so that we can have a new life. Set free from rules and bondage. You know, one of the wonderful things about being a Christian, the Bible has this wonderful word that so often speaks about grace. Do you know what? Christians are free from the laws. I'm not saying that we break laws. We, we don't want to break laws. The Bible says now that we are free to do whatever we want because all of our sin and debt has been paid for. So why then? I've got some Muslim colleagues that, that can't get their heads around this. They say, well, if you're free to do what you want, why don't you go and steal something or commit adultery? I don't want to. Because I love God. I love Jesus. Why would I want to do anything that is displeasing to him? The Bible speaks about us being constrained. You know, I'm married to a wonderful lady. I'm constrained by my love for her. There's lots of other people in the world, lots of other women in the world. I'm sure there's lots of lovely, beautiful women. But you know, there's no one like her. I'm constrained because of that love. And that's what the Bible says we should be like towards Jesus, constrained. Of course, you're free to do whatever you want. But the Bible says there is a day of accounting, a day when everything will be reckoned. So, we've dedicated Noah this morning. We believe that we are giving him the most sure and firm foundation for life. And those that have committed to pray for him this morning, I encourage you to continue to do that. That he would come to know these truths, that he would come to know that the Bible really is God's word. It's a book that brings comfort, a book that brings 
joy. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this time this morning. We again thank you for Noah, for his life. We pray for him, Lord. We pray for Matt and that as parents, Lord, that you bless them, give them wisdom and strength. Lord, help them as they learn how to take on this new role that you've given them. And Father, we thank you that in dedicating Noah to you, it's not just some ritual we go through. It's more than just symbolism. Lord, we have done this this morning because we have been made aware of the truth that you are creator, that we were sinful, that Jesus came and paid our price. And now, whosoever would put their trust and faith in Jesus can have eternal life. So Lord, we just pray that you help us to think soberly. We just thank you for this time. Lord, bless our, our time of fellowship. Lord, the rest of this day. We just thank you for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.